There's something in this text that is very unsettling on purpose. This is just a whole switch on how you view the structure of objects and relations between them. Yo, what's going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. My name is Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we're going to be starting our new book club. If you are new to the podcast, we do these book clubs periodically. This will be our third one. And we're going to be talking about a book by Daniel Kalutu. Chiello Barber. Is that how you say the middle name? I'm, I'm down for that. Yeah, it works. Um, and it is called On Diaspora. And what's the subtitle? Uh, Religion, Christianity, and Secularism, something like that. I don't know if that's the order. Yeah, something like that. Uh, so we're going to jump into that. It's sort of... Uh, it's a, it's a sort of way of navigating between the philosophical, the religious, the theological, the secular. Uh, it's a very interesting text. I think it's quite novel, so make sure you stick around for that. It'll be something um, for those of you who are new that we don't do necessarily week by week, but we'll do an episode, and then we'll take a week or two off, and then we'll come back to another episode, and we'll do it over the course of uh, a couple months here where we'll finish going through this book. It gives you time to chew on stuff, so yeah. But before that, we should mention, if you want to support us, you can go on patreon.com slash owls at dawn. There you can join one of a couple different tiers of support and get things like our monthly newsletter, which should be out pretty soon, coterminous, I would think, with this episode. Um, In the newsletter, we talk about some articles we've been reading, some extra sticky leaves, extra shitty minutes and stuff like that. More of what you get on the podcast, but detailed and written form. Um, mm-hmm. We also have bonus episodes periodically, which we throw up that are available for for the patrons only, um, as well as the ability to vote on future uh, patron-led and sponsored episodes, which we just did a recent one um, on how to deal with problematic artists and arts, which if you watched Leaving Neverland, maybe you should now go back to that episode and uh, listen to it. We didn't have that documentary in mind when doing the episode, but I think it's it's definitely pertinent to the discussion right now around the legacy of, you know, Michael Jackson. MJ. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so again, that's patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Sick. Let's do church. Let's do church. <laughs> Let's do the podcast. Uh, first thing we got to do is we got to start off with the shitty minute. This is the part of the episode where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is pissing us off for the week. It's Troy's turn this week. What's got you down, homie? So I just wanted to, you know, a little PSA for everybody. Um, general principle of thought and of uh, specifically the thought involved around critique. Um, the following. Criticizing the actions of a nation state does not entail criticism of the ethnic majority which makes up that nation state. So with that said, I want to say that I when I said... you're talking about someone in particular that has been dominating the news cycle. Does this have anything to do with a particular junior congresswoman? No, it's entirely about me because when I said that English food is the worst food in the world, I was critiquing the actions of the nation, not of English people. 
So oh. I, I've been I've been accused of anti English, anti Anglo bias, Anglophobia. Anglo. Mm. Um, yes. And so I wanted to kind of put that out there to make sure that those criticisms leveled against me of um, Anglophobia. You know, I'm Italian, so you know it, it goes with the territory that you know, might hang the English people. Um, but I wanted to make mm. sure everyone knows that I don't think that. And I was simply critiquing the um, actions of the nation, such as to feed their cows only the grossest of grass um, so that their hamburgers uh, feel like and taste like chewing on rubber. Um, those are actions of a nation state. And so I think we should criticize the actions of the nation state, which is absolutely um, valid and legitimate. And that is not a critique of the ethnic majority, which makes up that nation state. So I'm just excusing myself from that. I blame the British government for their horrible, overcooked, rubbery meat. A hundred percent. Yeah, and I hope that Corbyn resolves this problem. Fucking A. Make meat great again, Corbyn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dude. The internet's a strange world, isn't it? It's been freaking out lately. It's been such a parody, man. I mean, did you see the whole Meghan McCain thing that happened? Bro. I think it was this morning. Yeah. Yeah, I saw it. <laughs> yeah, dude. So I think that we have an, an especially uh, pertinent view on not necessarily this on anti-Semitism or on the history of Israel and Palestine and all that kind of stuff, but on the tendency of American evangelicals whose extent of uh, knowledge of uh, Jewishness is basically like they, they softened their on the roof one time. Um, or or like the... the- the cartoon, did you see the cartoon that, is it Eli Valley? Is that his name? Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah, that he came out that he had Yentl, uh, a picture of Megan <laughs> McCain, and then like Yentl on her desk. <laughs> <laughs> or like they have an Old Testament in yeah. their house, which is and kind she of it's to anti-Semitic. <laughs> it's the Old Testament. <laughs> right, the Old Testament. Not- <laughs> yeah, no, don't worry. We superseded that. <laughs> the greatest right. cultural product that you're... A religion and ethnic majorities ever produced like we we, we superseded that we did better <laughs> yeah was was the prequel <laughs> how, yeah how condescending <laughs> but yeah so we have an especially i think uh interesting view on this because you know we gr- having grown up in the evangelical movement and seen this stuff the fascination with israel amongst american evangelicals is it's, it's the weirdest thing mm-hmm. in like the political sphere and that's saying a lot because there's so much weird shit in the political sphere in america right now right it is so weird that there's this fascination with the state of Israel, which has nothing really to do with any of the people there or with any goals the people there might have or with ever even sort of commiserating with those people or having mm-hmm. any relationships with those people. It's purely this like instrumental thing. Well, um, and, and it's even worse than that. If you ask them, they would say that if a Jewish person died right now, they would go to hell. Yeah. Well, so there's not, actually scorn. There's actually disdain and scorn for where they are now. It's just that they could potentially be this instrumental uh, element in the redemption of humanity, which then validates their position. So it's like it's just insidious and instrumental through and through. Yeah, and I think you could probably excuse the whole if they died, they're going to hell thing with like you know that's kind of like a fictionalist belief. Like they say that, but. They don't enact that in their actions, so it's not something they really deeply believe. But the actions they do undertake in supporting the you know right-wing government that is currently running the state of Israel actually is enacted in there, um, is an enacted belief, right? 
in yeah. this really strange sense of you know half of it's kind of like you know the political stuff right having this um government that's an that's an ally in the middle east right um but then also amongst evangelicals specifically the desire to sort of bring about the end times through the state of israel as sort of a that's it a necessary but insufficient means of doing so um and when you tell people that i think you mostly get scoffs like either that's completely nuts or i don't really believe it they don't actually like talk about that they don't actually think that but they actually do (laughs) it's the thing they actually do and i think it's a it's not a fictionalist belief. I think it's an actually really enacted belief for a lot of people. Not everyone necessarily, but for a lot of people. And that's yeah, just... And the, 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 like the extent to which eschatology, you know, pre-millennial evangelical eschatology affects people's day-to-day decisions or political decisions or their grander life, is it's hard to determine, right? Like on, a, on an individual basis. But generally speaking... It's not difficult, especially if you look at like some of the quotes from Megan McCain's pastor, who it's Pastor Hagee. And I don't know if it's Hagee Sr. or Hagee Jr., but um, he basically is was quoted in an article that I briefly read this morning that was like, why would God allow the Holocaust? And it was, well, God allowed it so that he could bring back the nation of Israel. Because again, the whole point is that would somehow aim towards the fulfillment of a particular reading of the book of Revelation, Right. Um, so that shit has real consequences, like in the material, the lived material realities that we experience. Yeah. It's kind of the ultimate manifestation of that one thing that Zizek said that I I really like, which is, um, you know, Dostoevsky once said that without God, anything is possible or anything is permitted. Right. Mm. Um, but Zizek says he wants to turn it around and say with God, anything is permitted. Yeah. Um, Or without God, nothing is permitted. I think it was just the first one that he said, right? I thought he said, "Without God, nothing is permitted." Because I'm the sure. idea, yeah, go ahead. Maybe, maybe at a different point. But the one I'm remembering is he says, "Well, with God, anything is permitted." In the sense of, okay. you can sort of justify almost anything um, as sort of morally permissible if you think you have, you know, uh, mm. God or capital H history or whatever on your side. Um, yeah. What, what would the, what would the other one mean? Uh, it has to do with like the symbolic. So without God, nothing is permitted. You can't act if there's no symbolic order, right? Okay, you have yeah. to have the symbolic framing in order to actually do anything. But then, of course, the inversion of that would be that, okay, but then, of course, if you have control over the symbolic, then you can use that as the master discourse, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm not so, referring to. They're different, but they're inversely related. Or, as Daniel Barber might say, there's some sort of uh, imminent relation that reveals the inconsistencies that uh, causally relates them to one another. Right? Right? This is a good segue. Segue! Alright, should we talk about uh, this book a little bit before we jump in? I think we should. So... Do you have any experience um, with uh, this book before we started reading it? So I uh, went to university with uh, people who are quoted actually and thanked in the acknowledgments of this book um, who are very close with Dan Barber. I've never met Dan Barber in person. I've interacted with him online way back in the day when we were doing our blog, 
you know, so when was that, 2009 to 2012 or 2008 to 2012, something like that? Yeah, something like that. Did we even start it earlier than that? We may have started earlier than yeah, that, but somewhere like around then. Yeah, I think it was like 2006 or seven. Jesus. But so I interacted with him online then because he was a frequent contributor to the On und für Sich blog, which is an amazing blog for people who don't know it. It's just like itself.com, I think. Um, but on und für Sieg, uh, it is an amazing blog that is run by a group of philosophers of religion, um, continental philosophers, theologians, let's say heterodox theologians. And uh, so Barber is a contributor on there, at least he used to be. So I've, I've been familiar with his work through, let's say, the blog formats and then through conversations with friends of his who helped, I think, in a lot of ways uh, – work through a lot of the concepts that he puts in written form here. At least that's how he frames it, and I, I believe it because he's very close with people that I used to be close with. Um, and then I've heard interviews with him. What about yourself? Yeah, I mean, mine's the exact same. Uh, I okay. kind of religiously read um, Aufs, as I think we affectionately called it back in the day, and in first mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of my, my sort of radicalizing from um, mildly conservative evangelical into like flaming radical heterodox evangelical uh, and then eventually out of the whole thing came from reading outs. I don't even know how I came onto it in the first place. Um, it'd be kind of fun to trace back how that came out in the first place. Maybe it was just like looking for theology stuff on the internet and that comes up um, a lot. But yeah. I think it was just, I found their the takes of those writing those blogs as much more persuasive than the stuff that I was being taught. Um, mm. It was both conceptually and logically more rigorous, um, even though a lot of it was in a language that I hadn't quite internalized yet. And so I have a, I have a sort of deep affection for that um, whole group of thinkers and still follow a lot of them today, even though I don't really have any desire to work in theology proper um, much anymore. Um, yeah, that's. I think we've had this book on our radar for a number of years because it came out in like what 2010, ish. Yeah, yeah. So I've had this book on my to read list. I think ever since it came out, probably, but just <laughs> it was never something that I had to read. It was more of like, oh, I want, I want to kind of go through this at some point. Um, since it, it's sort of name checked by a lot of people that I that I respect greatly as a very influential and foundational text. Um, but then it was never it was never something that was eminently uh, necessary. So I'm glad that we're doing it for this purpose because it's going to sort of force at least me to be much more rigorous in my reading of it rather than just sort of you know, kind of flippantly going through it. Um, even mm. though I do get the sense that it's going to probably mean less to me now than it might have if I read it 10 years ago. Um, but I think mm. it will be a good way to sort of encapsulate and put into more rigorous conceptual formation things I already think. Um, and maybe also things that I don't have a deep affection for, like the Deleuzean stuff. But it will be interesting what, to sort of yeah. think about it a little bit more since I don't spend a lot of time with it. That's what I was going to say. If the last choice, the Cohen book, was more your selection, this is clearly more in line with kind of like my particular orientation. Um, as weird as it sounds, like I struggled... In, in, a, in a very productive sense, I struggled with every chapter of Cohen. Uh, whereas when I read this, I'm provoked to thought, but it's so comfortable for me. 
which is strange yeah, now, because that was the opposite. <laughs> I would I, I was going to say I would imagine. I was going to ask you about that because I think one of the things just to say at the outset about his this is not an easy book. This is the first chapter at least is extremely dense and maybe uh abstruse in a lot of ways but there's there's an intention to that and it's because he talks a lot about indeterminacy and he talks a lot about uh or he uses a lot of even when he's not intentionally doing so he uses a lot of uh what i would call like delusian language and it's because he's talking about this um He's trying to really circumvent a certain tendency that Derrida would call like the metaphysics of presence or determinateness in logocentrism, right? Which is a, what Derrida sort of analyzes as a particular tendency within philosophy, Western philosophy, um, towards a type of, uh, of communication that is determinate and that is always trying to... Uh, for lack of a better term, kind of like isolate terms, categories, significations, meanings, um, in very determinate categories or senses, uh, in very determinate taxonomies or ways. And this book very much circumvents that tendency, even though it's not self-avowedly deconstructing um, through like that particular approach, it is there is a sense in which there's a deconstructive activity of deconstructing um, certain binaries, particularly let's say the binary between transcendence and immanence, where transcendence oftentimes has dominance and immanence is sort of like derived from transcendence or the excess of, or as he says, like below and transcendence is the beyond, but transcendence is given like categorical uh, priority. And he's uh, trying to circumvent that tendency through sort of a deconstruction of that um, by thinking imminence as as a pri uh, as priority, uh, thinking of imminence as a primary or fundamental um, ontological and discursive category, and that's very different from a lot of philosophical approaches, and it's very counterintuitive. And if that doesn't make sense to people who are listening, stick with us because we'll try to unpack kind of what that means as we go through the chapters here. But there's something in this text that is very unsettling on purpose. And I am attracted to that process of unsettling. I'm, I'm attracted to problematizing things um, in the way that Barber does. So I, I, I found this extremely refreshing. And it actually, I think that even though you said you may not have found it as impactful as you you would have had you read it 10 years ago. I actually found some really interesting ways to cross this over with a lot of work that I'm doing now in political economy. And let me just say this at the outset. When he talks about transcendence and he has this taxonomy of these different discourses, these four different discourses, uh, the three discourses that are still um, wedded to the priority of transcendence, I think we can put capitalism into uh, uh the, 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 the same sort of category as something that prioritizes a transcendence, that forecloses or that wards off the future, that operates according to reverse causality. And I think if we just keep that in the back of our minds, what that means moving forward will make sense even as we're looking at a text that doesn't mention capitalism at all. But so for me, I'm kind of – because I'm interested in criticizing capitalism from a sort of like 
continental philosophy of religion or theological or like maybe heterodox theological or or whatever it is that Barber's project is. Like I'm interested in criticizing capitalism from a similar perspective. And the reason is because both Barber and I were influenced by someone who – the guy who was my master's dissertation supervisor, Philip Goodchild, who has literally written a book called Theology of Money in which he's doing a sort of theological critique or analysis of capitalism and money. And then his first book, uh, well, the book I should say before that, not his first book, but the book before that, Capitalism and Religion, he's doing something similar. So I think there's a way to kind of bridge that divide to concerns that are more pressing for what particularly are, are dominating my thought at the moment. So just to keep that in mind as we're reading through this. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned um, capitalism is never mentioned uh, so far, but clearly you can sort of take the theoretical apparatus being produced here and kind of map it onto different domains. I was thinking the exact same thing, but about things that are more at my immediate concern revolving around ethics, um, and especially Ooh. in metaethics. So we'll, I think we'll kind of come back to that probably cool. periodically as we get through this book, because I think um, this is a, a kind of foundational type text. It's, it's that you can then develop tools with which you can use on all sorts of different areas. And so thinking about how those tools can be used in different areas will be a thing that I think will be very helpful in terms of um, sort of getting the cash value out of this text. But really quick, one thing I want to mention cool. about your um, talking about the possibly abstruseness of the text. I actually thought that the prose is exceptionally clear. Um, there's no point really in the actual prose where I found myself wondering, you know, what the antecedent of the pronoun was or <laughs> what's being referenced or which of the key terms um, is being sort of explicated in this paragraph or whatever, right? It's the concepts themselves that are extremely uh, vague and unclear to me, which, mm. I mean, I think you can tell me because you've had more experience with this kind of literature. Um, it's kind of the point, right? It's problematizing the content it's assumed to be in, in these concepts um, and trying to make that sort of uh, those contradictions and those tensions that come from the vague language into something productive and creative to something different. And so I think there's some yeah. sense in which you have to be patient and see where this goes rather than immediately get frustrated because you haven't done the Socratic defining of concepts and then analyzing those concepts and see what you can derive. The classic, you know, like Socratic dialectic. Um, and I get frustrated yes. at that because obviously I'm more used to that kind of conceptual analysis, um, especially lately. But I do think it's it's important to be patient that the author work in the genre in which they're writing and see what they can do with it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you. And I think that, that really hints at why the book is called On Diaspora. And so to kind of move now towards the introduction, one of the things that he establishes in the introduction is what he's seeking to do in this text is think through the concept of diaspora as a concept, not as an empirical or sociological reality of diasporic tendencies in across nation states, right? So he's not thinking about the Jewish diaspora as an empirical reality of something that took place historically or the African diaspora in that sense. But rather, he wants to first think of diaspora conceptually. And one of the ways that we might think of that is he talks about this idea of indeterminacy, right? And I think that's precisely what you just mentioned a minute, a minute ago that you found to be a little bit, at least productively unsettling, we might say. 
is that diaspora is a sort of motif that cuts through all of his analysis of any con concepts or conceptualizations that he's exploring because there's a diasporic character or tendency, let's say, within conceptualization per se, that they are themselves diasporic. They are indeterminate. So I talked about Derrida and logocentrism. The, the opposite of that, let's say, or the unpacking of that it, that we see displayed in this text is to think indeterminacy or to allow indeterminacy to affect our thinking of different concepts that themselves are indeterminate perpetually. And that's where a lot of the unsettling comes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in the latter part of that introduction, I think um, he kind of explicates this concept of diaspora, not not sort of exhaustively or comprehensively, but um, to kind of set the stage for how this is going to go. He mentions that the logic of diaspora is this understanding of inconsistency or indeterminacy as a good thing, as a creative opportunity yes. for thought. Um, and it's these inconsistencies in the concept of Christianity, which is going to get to um, in the later chapters of the book that we'll get to eventually, which lead to the creation of religion, and then inconsistencies in the concept of religion, which lead to the creation of the secular or secularity. And so there will be this... Um, it's it's not simply a book that's about Christianity, religion, and secularism, or sort of analyzing these concepts, but instead seeing how the inconsistencies um, in one sort of produce opportunities for the next. So there's sort of a, a I don't know if I want to use the term linear because maybe your Deleuzian radar will go off and say that that's incorrect. But what's the better Deleuzian metaphor for linearity here that I'm looking for? Uh, well, you could say there's a causal relation, an imminent an imminent causal relation. Yeah, which is a good segue, right? Because cause and effect is a concept that is here in this first chapter on imminence going to be sort of creatively reimagined in a way. Um, so the beginning of this first chapter, Barbara talks about relationality as being sort of the fundamental uh, sense in which um, imminence exists, right? It is a relational ontological concept primarily. Um and the sense in which it's relational is that he claims something about uh, causes and effects um, being mutually or reciprocally co-constituted. I love this. Yeah, <laughs> um, this is this is where this is where I feel really at home, and where I have a lot of difficulty a lot of times when I'm in the seminar room or when I'm engaging with others who aren't as familiar, who aren't just like because I, I've been reading this type of stuff since 2009 pretty consistently. So we're talking 10 years now where this type of literature that has influenced Barber's uh, work here uh, has just kind of constantly been in my mind, right? Um, and, and now it almost just forms like the background horizon of my hermeneutical framework. And so I feel very comfortable here. And one of the things that I enjoy about, uh, that I enjoyed about this, this chapter is that he gave me he gave me some really nice formulations for thinking through things that I've had a difficult time explaining to my colleagues over the years. And I actually got really excited because we had a reading group. We're going through um, a text here in Sydney by Doreen Massey. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a political economist who I think she recently passed away. But she has a book called Spatial Divisions. What's it called? Oh, gosh. Spatial Divisions of Labor is what it's called. And we're going through this. And one of the things that, that she's doing is she's talking about how uh, she's like a critical geographer 
um, in in the, the the world of, of political economy. And so she believes that you can derive a lot about a particular society's economic and social relations by analyzing the geographical or spatial layout of a particular society. So she's in the UK, so she's looking at like uh, sort of regional layouts of, um, of the UK, and she's trying to derive then economic and social principles from it. And one of the things then that she argues is this idea that um, that geography matters, which is a slogan, I guess, in critical geography that is quite ubiquitous. <laughs> and for her, um, one of the things she wants to realize in this text is what she calls the spatiality of social relations. And she wants to look at um, spatial construction as being a product of or derived from uh, the underlying social relations. So there's this causal relation. However, she's not just thinking about it in like a base superstructure or cause effect in the simple sense, but there is this sort of how the cause is retained in the effects, but um, the effects are affected. I'm sorry, uh, the, the cause is retained in the effects, but the cause is affected by the effects. And even though she's not articulating it in that way, a lot of Barber's formulations have been really helpful just because of like simple things like that. They've been really helpful in helping me to kind of like think through and and to make sense of in nice little sound bites a lot of these other things that I've been working through over the, fi- the over the over the few years. So I, I found that really uh, beneficial here in the opening in the opening pages. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about this critical geography. I don't know much about the discipline, but I do know that there used to be at least a kind of dominance in um, the more academic side of geography of like a geographic determinism or geographical determinism, right? Which was basically just looking at geography and then kind of determining how the social relations um, follow necessarily in a sense from the geography. And that I think yep. that, that that domain um, is sort of, or that paradigm has sort of been overturned um, by more mm-hmm. recent critical geographers, right? So I'd imagine mm-hmm. that's that's a big part of um, like the sort of bringing imminence as Barbara's determining it, whether consciously or not, into this realm of geography. Yeah, and 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 she doesn't use this language, but I was reading through the text, and at one point I wanted to say, oh, it sounds like she's basically using the Deleuzian language of the actualization of the virtual, but without doing it. She just didn't have the resources because she wasn't a philosopher. And I don't think she had read Deleuze. Um, she doesn't quote him at all in any of the books that I've read or anything like that. Um, that doesn't mean that she may not have been familiar with concepts from like conferences and stuff like that. I'm sure she probably heard the name. Um, but she doesn't at least spend a lot of time engaging with it. But nevertheless, a lot of the stuff that she's that she's aiming towards fit really well into stuff that Barbara is explicitly detailing. And in particular, let's let's kind of stop beating around the bush here and let's talk about this relation of cause and effect that he talks about. Um, so... The question is, is what does he mean when he says that the cause is affected by its effects? And how is it that the cause is retained in the effects? What does he mean there? Like, what is it that he's that he's talking about? You tell me, man. um the main thing is this okay when we tend to think of cause, we tend to think of the cause as being something that is prior to its effects, right? So let's speak not just prior to but but ontologically independent. Ontologically independent of it is not affected by its affectation. It's not constituted. Yeah, right. Not constituted. Right. 
so we think of God as creating the universe uh, in, in a very simple sense, right? God is this self-sufficient, autonomous entity who exerts an effect. Like there's that formulation in, uh, in um, continental philosophy of religion, right? And like the theological arguments for the existence of God and stuff like that that are like, you know, a cause has to be greater than its effects. That is very common, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the implication there is that there's something completely independent in the cause that has no relation that is not affected by the effects whatsoever and so uh what barber is doing is he's really transforming that that formulation and what he says is that the cause is not prior to its effects because its essence the essence of the cause itself is actually affected by what it affects and that the cause, he says, this is a quote, is constituted by its effects. So what that means is, is, and he talks about this later in the chapter, that there's like a reverse causality. And what we could say by that is that in any given effect, uh, there's a sense in which the cause is retained in that effect because there's an imminent relation between the two, right? Um, but at the same time, we must also say that the cause is only known as that cause. It's only characterized in its particularity insofar as it is affected by what it affects. It is constituted in its expression of itself in its effects. Does that make sense? Yeah, so here, here's my question. Okay. Um, this is what I'm thinking about when I was reading this. Um, there's a sort of deflationary and a radical way of interpreting this, I think. The deflationary way, I think, would be to interpret it um, epistemologically and to say that in some sense our beliefs about or our knowledge of causes is affected or maybe our concepts of causes are affected by um, their effects. So in some sense um, when uh, so a guy named Joe he's just your friend, he's a guy, he sits on the couch and he smokes pot and he plays video games but then he gets a girlfriend and gets real serious and has a kid and he totally changes, right? (laughs) You might say that, well, now my concept of Joe is different because these effects that he caused, right, have in a sense co-constituted him, right? That's that's a very mundane and not very uh, theoretically helpful sort of (laughs) illustration, but I think maybe it gets the idea across a little bit. That's like a deflationary Mm -hmm. view of it. And I think almost everybody believes that or at least can incorporate that into their thinking. But right. that's, I think Barber's not advocating that, although he may be minimally advocating that. But I think his thesis, you can tell me here if you think that I'm, that I'm off, off course, but is the radical interpretation, which is not epistemological, but ontological. Yeah, It's exactly. not just that our concepts of these things are co-constituted by whatever their effects are in the world, um, but that they are actually ontologically as a thing constituted by those effects. And that's Precisely. a much more radical thesis, which I don't think people intuitively think is the case at all. And in fact, it's probably offensive to our intuitions. At least it should be. If it's not, then you're probably just enjoying it for the sake of novelty than actually trying to think about it, you know? Yeah, well, it seems to fly in the face of a lot of sort of common sense understanding of physics too, right? That, that people want to think that like, so you have a rock and you throw a rock at a, a glass window or like a mirror. I'm looking at a mirror right now. And the idea is, is that 
So the cause effect is, let's say I throw the rock, and of course there are all kinds of different causal mechanisms that are happening there, but let's just say the rock hitting the mirror is the simple cause effect relation, right? Um, so rock hits mirror, breaks mirror. The typical, like, uh, commonsensical way of viewing that is that the rock has an essence, and that the reason that the rock is able to affect, and now when we say the reason, we're talking about meaning and signification here. So the reason, the explanation that the rock is able to break the mirror to cause that effect is because there's some sort of essential substance that characterizes the rock. It's hard, it's solid, um, it's flying at a particular velocity, and the substance that it encounters also has its particular substance, and it's able to be affected by this relational encounter, right? That's like, I think, the commonsensical way of thinking about things. It's because of the essence of rock against the essence of mirror under these circumstances at this velocity, at this trajectory, whatever, that's going to cause the result of the broken mirror. But the unpacking of that, the problematizing of that, thinking from imminence, as barbarers want to do, is to say that actually that, that the cause of that particular actualization of that rock encountering that mirror at that trajectory in that instance is constituted by the complexity and the totality of those conditions in that particular actualization. And that that's what constitutes the imminent relation between rock and mirror in that particular circumstance. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like a whole gestalt switch in terms of how you view the multiplicity of objects and the relations in the world, right? From the commonsensical right. notion of discrete, concrete objects, which have interactions, and those interactions are best exemplified by relations between each other, which is the exact way that sort of analytic philosophy or analytic metaphysics treats the whole thing. Which I think is right. actually a really good encapsulation of common sense thinking about these things. I think analytic metaphysics is kind of purposed towards really mm. deeply explicating common sense thinking about objects. And Barber, I think, is just kind of saying here, this is just a whole switch on how you view the structure of objects and relations between them. Right. Which I and think it, is really yeah. interesting, even from an analytic philosophy point of view, because there's a movement, um, and I don't know how popular it is today, but I know at a certain point in the sort of a latter half of the 20th century, the idea of ontological multiplicity was pretty popular. And I found myself pretty into the idea that there are multiple true or accurate or coherent at least paradigms of viewing objects and relations between them um mm. and that there isn't necessarily an a, a schematically independent way of verifying which one is mm. true and so now people hear that and they go like it's ontological relativism or in some bad way or whatever i think quine actually called it that um but I think it's actually kind of a really interesting theoretical um, investigation to try and develop a whole different kind of ontological paradigm here using imminence as the guiding principle for situating the boundaries between objects, relations, and other objects or cause and effect in this case. Mm. Yeah. Um yeah, so let me let me just read a, a quote here real quick. So here's just a kind of summarizing quote. He says, uh, "Effects therefore are no longer separate substances from the cause; they instead become 
affections or modalities of the cause, singularities that determinately constitute or express the one and only substance. Now, this is where we get to what is this one and only substance? And this is what where the stakes come in for Barber because um, what he wants to do is avoid thinking transcendence. And when you think of things in that commonsensical way, in the relation between cause and effect, you are introducing a, a, a relation of priority between transcendence and imminence or between uh, cause and effect because the commonsensical way of viewing God, for example, is that somehow there is an independent substance of God that is beyond all of these unaffected creatures, God being the transcendent, creatures then being the sort of like imminent either um, creation of his will or expression of his essence or whatever, but nevertheless, there's still a relation of priority between God and the imminent, between the beyond and the below, between the transcendent and the imminent. And he wants to think uh, completely apart from that way of formulation, to think imminence. And what that means is, is kind of borrowing from Spinoza, is that there is one single substance. There is one plane of reality. When we speak about being, when we speak about reality, let's say, even though the word reality is obviously not is philosophically accurate, but for a lot of listeners, let's say, uh, that there is one way in which we speak about all things within reality because they are all uh, expressions or modes of that single substance of being. So there's a monism here. There is one thing that makes up the universe. And that's important to kind of understand. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned God as the transcendental um, kind of determiner in that aspect, right? But, right. you know, we'll get into this God or nature stuff from Spinoza in a second. But the other side of it is you could view nature as that transcendental um, determiner. Right. In that, for instance, maybe, I don't think he mentions this specifically about Kant, but you could take the, the Kantian picture of the, in itself, at the noumenal realm, which is transcendence to our phenomenal experiences, and of which we can't say really anything um, philosophically you know, accurate or true about the noumenal world other than like all of ethics and God and religion. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. So, and that's not really common sense necessarily for most people, but it's kind of philosophical common sense, right? It's the whole paradigm of modern philosophy, which is this idea of how can we know everything's true when we just have these appearances, right? How do we know that those mm -hmm. appearances are sort of connected to the world in the right way? Everybody has that philosophical moment in their life at some point or where they're, you know, seven, eight, 10, 12, 15, however old they are. And they realize I just had a dream, but it seemed really real. So then how do I know this is really real? That's a mm -hmm. very commonsensical philosophical question. And maybe you just kind of ignore it and never, you know, deeply dive into the philosophical questioning. But I think that's probably how almost all of us get into philosophical thinking, right? Is through an idea like that. It's very commonsensical, um, even though it's rare. So that that's also, I think, from the the nature point of view, um, situating transcendence as this uh, thing over and above imminence, which then also determines imminence. Yeah, which I think is really important to think because I think a lot of people might be listening to this and be going, yeah, but I'm a materialist, right? So I'm a monist. Uh-uh-uh. You have to be careful <laughs> because 
what, did I just do the uh uh uh? You didn't say the magic word from Jurassic Park. Um, but no. <laughs> <laughs> but Barber's criticism would be, no, there is a tendency, even within quote-unquote materialism, let's say scientific naturalism, um, and I would even argue in a lot of Marxist materialism, and this is what I was trying to get at when I was talking, when we were talking with the Lit Crit guy a few episodes back, that I didn't feel like I was able to accurately describe, um, particularly when I was criticizing certain strains within Marxist thought that I was kind of trying to be critical of that I then issued my mea culpa about uh, a week later um, because of how I felt like I mischaracterized. But my, my, my point ultimately is that in a lot of supposed quote-unquote materialist discourses and a lot of scientific naturalist discourses, there's still a transcendence. There's a dualism that characterizes a lot of this thinking because nature or, um, uh, let's say, political economic material analysis is viewed as the transcendent category or even, let's say, the transcendental regulative principle that determines the rest of discourse. And so it actually erects a dualistic or a transcendent paradigm of thinking. And that's what I'm resisting when I want to really think about uh, a different way of formulating a materialism. Or in Barber's term, what I want to do is I want to think eminence as well. Or if we want to get into Spinoza now, God or nature, right? Yes, let's do that. Let's talk about God or nature. So the question or the way that Barber goes from this explication of imminence as this reciprocal co-constitution thing. And then the question is, um, well, what is this what is this thing, this one thing, this substance, um, that it that it where reciprocal co-constitution is sort of the site of it, or the location of it. And um, that's substance for Spinoza, right? And he names substance God, comma, or nature. Hmm. And there's probably been more written about this than we could possibly ever digest Dude. in yeah. a single series of podcasts, let alone right now. But Hundreds um, of years of debate. <laughs> Liter literally. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm not really Spinozistic, but I think I've told you before that I think Spinoza's ethics is quite possibly the greatest piece of philosophy ever written. And if mm. if the aliens who find our remains discover any work of philosophy, I would hope for uh, vainglory or vainglorious sake that they find Spinoza's ethics because it will be sort of, it'll mm. make us look the best in terms of our ability to think about things. Um, mm. God or nature for Barber, it seems like without getting into the sort of interpretive uh, battles over what exactly Spinoza meant by an authorial attention wise. Um, are these two different poles um, of interpreting substance? And he uses terms like non-reductive, uh, non-identity, oscillation, hmm. the relay between namelessness and signification. There's a whole lot of things here um, that it's really hard to kind of grasp what these concepts are getting at if they're just different shades on the same concept, if they're just synonymous, um, or what. H how did you sort of put this all together into one package as far as interpreting God or nature? Well, first I have a question, because I this was my question too. Is there a homologous relation between God or nature in Barber, in Barber? Uh, between God or nature, 
and namelessness and signification. Like, is God to namelessness as nature is to signification? Or maybe is God to signification as nature is to namelessness? Does that, is there a homologous or maybe just an analogous relation? Well, the way I took it is that namelessness and signification are descriptions, right? They're not names. Whereas God or nature are names of okay. those descriptions. Now, that might be some philosophy of language stuff that I'm just kind of shoving into here to make sense of it. Um, but it seems to me like, so he, he equates namelessness with nature and signification with God, right? That's the connection okay. between these two pairs. Um, right. And his ultimate point is to say that this is, an, this is not like an ordered pair or a determined pair or a uh, one-way street, I think is the term he uses for it, kind of pair, where in some sense, God determines nature or is transcendent to nature, nor is you know the reverse. But instead, there's a relay between them. Yes, I like and that. This, and I think, you know, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the idea of relay is just a metaphor for going back and forth, right? I love that, yeah. It's not even a two-way street. It's a, what's like the term for like a racetrack? <laughs> like a big loop. I was thinking ping pong. Oh, that's perfect, yeah. Yeah. Table tennis, there's, yeah. Yeah, there's like this ping pong relationship between the two. And I think that's so important to for people who are listening in particular. There's debate in Spinoza. So Spinoza is writing in a time period where, you know, it wasn't like cool to be an atheist, <laughs> you know? He's he's <laughs> Jewish, but he's living in a Christian environment and he is writing he wrote this amazing book called A Theological Political Treatise. He wrote The Ethics. He he's writing in a time where he's being critical of certain concepts. And so you get a lot of people who come along and say, "Well, the reason he wrote God or Nature is because he really is an atheist and he wants to write nature, but he has to just appease the authorities at the time so he's not burned at the stake." Right? That's kind of an argument that you see a lot. That, yeah, and, that and the really, dumb part about that is yeah, go ahead. It, he, he's not dumb enough to think that would actually work. Because <laughs> right? well, first of all, it didn't, right? He was still branded a heretic, kicked out of his own community, and, and never <laughs> right. held like an actual university job for his entire life. Um, but it couldn't have just been like, like Hume does this, right? Hume clearly does this in like the Dialogues of Natural Religion, where uh, Philo is constantly skeptical of Demia and Cleanthes' arguments for God. And then helps them destroy each other's arguments, right? Because they're kind of opposed to each other. One is more of an empiricist than the other. And then Philo at the end is kind of like, yeah, but we should believe in God anyway because, you know, it's pious. <laughs> it's like, okay, he was bullshitting here, right? He's just mm. kind of trying not to lose his job, trying not to be burned at the stake or whatever, or be persecuted. Mm. But I don't think you can take that kind of obvious interpretation of Hume and incorporate it into Spinoza here because, one, it didn't work, Right. And it wasn't going to, in fact, being called a Spinozist for like the next several hundred years became an accusation of utter heresy. If you're going to sort of identify God with the natural world, then that's basically the same as being an atheist. It was kind of practically considered to be the same. So mm. it didn't work and it was never going to work. So yeah, that's just a, it's just a failed interpretation, I think, on its face. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And then, of course, Barber is definitely, because of his his willingness to think through the sort of like indeterminacy within these imminent causal relations, his approach to thinking about God or nature 
isn't to reduce one to the other, and it isn't to say that they are in a um, in like a discrete external relation to one another either, because that would be to think transcendence, right? Particularly, we can think about it this way. So one of the things that deconstruction tries to do is it tries to take like binaries, per, for example, like Goddard in nature, and it tries to kind of like wrestle through the prioritization of one over the other. So in theological circles, God is given priority over nature. And then let's say in, in naturalistic circles, nature is obviously given priority to God because God is viewed as like an illusion or something like it. It's completely discarded, um, but it's not really discarded because uh, naturalism is actually constituted in its rejection of theism in a lot of ways, which later Barbara refers to as reverse causality, which I fucking love that, by the way. Um that like something is constituted in its warding off of the very thing. So he talks about that in relation between like capitalism and communism in a footnote. Um, so actually he does talk about capitalism in the first chapter, but it's in a footnote. But he's he says referencing that, someone else's work though. Who was it? Uh, what's his name? I have it. I have it marked. It's uh, Kenneth Surin. Oh, that's right. Freedom a, Not Yet. Yeah. Freedom Not Yet. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the idea in relationship between... Uh, communism and capitalism is that um, it's not that we should locate causality in capitalism but in communism the fear of which causes capitalism to be what it is I love that I love that um, it's this idea that, that capitalism is constituted in its perpetual contestation and warding off of its overcoming right there's something so lovely in describing it that way because it it really gets to the essential like regressive and reactionary character of capitalism. Um, and then let's broaden this out now to not just talk about you know uh, like political economy or, or, or whatever, but let's talk more at the theoretical level. Any sort of discourse that is similarly constituted um, operates according to that same logic of kind of warding off the thing that is like threatening it or potentially disrupting it. Right, and I think that's there's something really interesting about that. And I have no idea why I started talking about that. What were we saying? <laughs> well, um, you know, this is good because it, it makes me think. There's a question I wanted to ask you. Um, yeah, he just mentions this really briefly, but I thought it was super important. Um, the idea of expression, and I, it might have been in a footnote where he really gets to this, but he says, yeah, he has this ontological commitment towards the idea of expression equals constitution. Excuse me. Yeah, expression equals Con construction. I think construction. Right. right. Yeah, is the identity. Yeah, the foot the footnote is Eric Alies, where it's um expressivism equals constructivism. That's what you're thinking. Was it expressivism or expression? Oh, I'm sorry, maybe expression equals constructivism. Yeah, thank you. Sorry. Yeah, I think I think that might have been it. Um, and so I feel like you would have a better answer to this, but I just wanted to kind of mention it first. It seemed to me like that was sort of a really important um, foundational ontological claim, because the idea there seems to me to be that there is not some inner nature in a thing that unfolds in its actions, which is kind of like the bad dialectical view, right? The bad Hegel, for instance, although I think yeah. he even mentions that he thinks that's a bad version of Hegel and that other people have sort of come up with a better version. Um, yeah. But that instead you have this idea that the, the being of something, right? It's ontological properties and whatnot are constructed through expression, right? Through, actually sort of the unfolding rather than unfolding okay. some some like purely essential nature that exists beforehand is that the basic idea 
yeah, this is just another way of getting to that cause effect thing that we were talking about earlier. And that also that follows ties from in this, actually, I think is the idea. Yeah, exa- exactly. Exactly. And and I think that also fits into the notion of diaspora earlier. He says in the introduction that being itself is diasporic. Because the point is, is that being itself is indeterminate. It's unbounded. It's 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 got this indeterminacy that characterizes being itself. It's processual, we might say. Um so uh so one of the things he says right here, one way I think we can think about this actually is um distinguishing it from uh Aristotle's notion of causality particularly the formal cause um and this you find a lot in Deleuze where Deleuze is going to be critical and actually in the the later Sartre as well um but Deleuze is critical of any formulation that views causality as being a sort of realization of the possible because all that means is that which is realized was previously contained in the possible. For Aristotle, let's say it's contained in the formal cause, which means in a way that it was sort of already pre-existent. It may not have been manifest or realized or expressed in its actuality, but it was already realized. So we think about this a lot in terms of like conceptualization, right? Like you're an entrepreneur and uh, you're an innovator and you have a concept in your mind and all you did was realize that mental image into the physical product that you create. And But the idea is, is that it really existed in the mind. The truth of its existence was already essentially there, right? But the relationship between expression and construction is very different because the, the point is that there's a simultaneity between both expression, expression and construction. And there is no transcendent priority of one over the other. And so imminence then itself the single substance the single plane of reality itself becomes the autonomous reality that exists per se devoid of any sort of like pre-constituted essence or let's say that in imminence's expression of itself it's not simply expressing something that was previously existent in uh, a formal reality that is then materialized but that rather in the construction itself expression is constituted and then vice versa. Yeah, I'm super interested in this because um, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about sort of this this idea about conceivability is a very popular thing in the history of philosophy, right? Conceivability mm. entails yes. possibility. It's kind of the classic dictum that goes back to like at very least uh, Anselm, right? That's a big part of the ontological argument. The ontological um, argument, right, exactly. And so, and I think a lot of people are, that's been kind of a thing that I think everyone in, intuitively thinks is true. But I think when yep. you start to dig into it, we start to realize that it's very clearly not true. <laughs> um, mm. And have you ever read uh, Thomas Nagel's essay on panpsychism? No. Now, you recommended it to me, and I didn't read it yet. Yeah, it, it's so good. I mean, all, all of that, that's from the book Mortal Questions, which is just like okay the best book um but it's a fantastic article and i'm it's stuck in my mind so much ever since i've i've read it and one point he makes is that um you know panpsychism is often critiqued as being inconceivable um as if that's sort of a a a sort of reason for which you can sort of reject it or whatever and his point was that well yeah you ask an ancient greek um how to sort of conceptualize some of our determinations in modern physics and they might say the exact same thing 
that's mm. inconceivable, right? Given my paradigm of how physical objects are. And so his ultimate point is something like um, that. I'm not sure that panpsychism is true, but it seems like the best bet because the alternatives suck. Um, but that means we're going to have to have a whole new paradigm for how, how objects exist to kind of fit that into it. So probably everything about our current paradigm of physics is either wrong or is just only very, very partially true. Um, mm. And, you know, I think I messaged you after I read that and said, I might be into panpsychism now. <laughs> right, you did. Uh, not because his argument's like the best argument for it, because it was the best argument for me for it. Because mm. I got to the, I think, theoretical underpinnings of um, why panpsychism is at least a thing we can kind of move towards or, or kind of try and see that as like an ultimate theoretical goal or something. I mean, and it's about that idea of conceivability, right? That it's not conceivable just means it's not conceivable yet or given the current paradigm, a uh, conceptual paradigm that, that you're working with. Um, and I think that's a super interesting idea. It's super fraught also because you could use it for anything. So you have to be very careful about, you know, how to use that. It's kind of like a, um, like holding a bomb, right? Mm. Because you could use it for anything to blow up everything that exists, um, every conceptual paradigm. Um, there's there's some special way I think you can use it effectively, like you know putting dynamite on demolition or whatever. If you do it appropriately, you can actually do like a product have a productive process um, that follows mm. from that. See, so, yeah, I'm really into this idea, and I'm looking forward to seeing how we can bring that up later um, in the book and kind of see how because I think that's a very underlying. A foundational ontological claim which a lot of this other stuff kind of follows from that mm. that expression equals constructivism yeah this yeah. kind of new yeah. new ontology this new way a different mm. way of thinking about objects and relations mm. okay so here's a question that relates to this that i that i'm unsure about and i'm not sure that i was fully settled uh in into uh, even at after reading the chapter he then argues that, uh, he says basically, so imminence is therefore whatever is expressed, right? And he says, this is the diachronic aspect of naming imminence, for it affirms all things as equally expressing imminence and insists that whatever emerges is also an equally expressive of imminence. Cool. I'm with you right there. Then he says, on the other hand, there is the synchronic aspect of naming imminence, and it is this aspect that presents a greater difficulty. And it was difficult for me because then just a couple uh, sentences later, he talks about how the act of naming is not contingent. Even though the specific names that are put into play may be traced to the contingencies of a particular conjuncture, the act of naming itself remains necessary. This was the hardest part of the chapter for me. I was not ever settled into understanding why signification itself is necessary. I understand um, I understand why it, why the names are contingent, why naming imminence is always an, an act of impropriety. I get that. But why is naming itself necessary? And it relates to this necessity of expression and construction. Is it that as imminence expresses itself in its constructions, and therefore as we encounter constructions, and uh, 
therefore the reverse causality constitutes the expression, is it that that activity is essentially an activity of signification and that that's why it's necessary? Like, that's what I didn't understand. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I had a really hard time with this too, okay. um, especially with the phrase, the proper impropriety of signification. Which yes. Just, I mean, that breaks your conceptual brain. Um, I guess I took it a little bit, at least for functional purposes of getting through the chapter, of speaking to not a like not a necessity in terms of a determination necessarily, although maybe that's the case, I'm not sure, but more of a a lived necessity. And the See, that's how that, I took it. Yeah, that's to how I took think, it. Yeah. To be thinking beings who think imminence, um, you have to signify it to think it. Because thinking involves concepts and concepts name things, describe things. Um, now okay. you wouldn't have to do that if you were a fish. Maybe fish have mm -hmm. concepts. That's debatable. If you were a rock, mm -hmm. right? Now, are you one of those panpsychists who think rocks actually think? I mean, you know, James Williams did write an article <laughs> called "Thinking Thinking Pebbles." Yeah, I don't think that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's like a lived necessity as opposed to some sort of like logical determinative necessity in the sense that um, if we're beings that have concepts and can think the world in some sense, then we have to name things to think them. But we also have to keep in mind the whole time that's that naming is improper. It's necessary. You got to do it, but it's improper, um, and that you'll have to name again, and that naming will be um, different in some way. It's indeterminate in some way, and so I took it as that kind of necessity. Yeah. So I did too. I mean, or, or at least I. That was the only way of understanding it that I could reconcile. But I had a feeling that there's something else going on. I had a, I had a feeling that he was also making an ontological claim, which, if that's the case, I don't quite get it. Yeah, the only way in which I could see it being ontological is about the ontology of concepts themselves. Because um, we're talking about thinking imminence here. Um, I'm not sure that fish would have this issue of the relay between namelessness and signification. I just had a thought. I think I understand it, maybe. Okay, what? If we're going to understand how it is that he's talking about the relation between expression and construction, between cause and effect, because we are signifying beings, it's done so necessarily, not necessarily, not, not, uh, not contingently. And the reason is because the cause-effect relationship between expression and signification is one that is uh, characterized by that imminent co-constitutive relation between the two. So the very fact that we are signifying is taking place under uh, an ontological paradigm of necessity. Okay, so we're not even we're not just including concepts and in speech like linguistic things, but even things like actions. I think so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. I think for me that I think that's what it has to I mean, and it, not only does that make sense to me, but that makes sense within the the framework of thinking eminence that he's establishing. Right, yeah, that makes sense. To restrict it to the conceptual domain would be not thinking concepts imminently. Right. Okay. Yeah, I can buy that. Cool. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, I mean, I think a lot of people listening might be like, well, that's like re really convenient. It seems like a convenient sort of like that it's everything is post facto, that like, that like anything that happens happens necessarily, right? 
And in a way that's true, but it's not a necessity in the sense that the cause necessitated the effect. We have to stop thinking of about that in terms of like, uh, because a lot of people think of this like, here's a, an historical example. You know, the, the determinist Marxist reading uh, is that, that like, that, or let's say the determinist Hegelian reading is that certain stages of history were necessitated and that there's like this strange causality that history is this guiding causal force that necessarily leads to the expression of like terrible historical regimes like National Socialism right? Uh, but they were necessary, historically speaking. It's not that way of thinking. It's it's not that, like, there is this agent that is causally affecting necessary expressions. It's, again, we have to think away from transcendence towards thinking radical imminence that necessity isn't necessary in relation to some sort of autonomous entity or force or guiding prism that is determining things, but that rather... It's necessary in its uh, construction as an expression of the actualization of the virtuality of imminence, which is a very different way of thinking about necessity. Is, is the basic idea that the necessity lies in their being expression and construction, which are of course synonymous, and that the content of that expression um, and construction is not necessary? I like that. Whereas yeah. the more dialectical, like bad dialectics version, that's kind of the enemy here, considers the content itself necessary. Yeah, I like that. And I think but that's I think that's precisely why its signification is necessary or just naming is necessary. But the proper names that people ascribe to that naming process, that's what's wrong. That's not right. That's why there's an impropriety, right? But the right. The proper impropriety, it's proper in that naming is necessary, but it's improper in that the naming doesn't clearly or exclusively or determinately articulate imminence per se, because imminence per se is nameless. Right. So let's talk about, because we're getting pretty long here, let's talk about the rival paradigms. So I think okay. this was by far the easiest part of the chapter. And I knew you would like it because he talks about Bart and some other stuff and I was like ooh and then of course he, he talks about like Badu and Zizek and I was like this is I knew that this would be an interesting section for us to chat about yeah I kind of think about this similar to the way I think about when we did the Prozorov text and he's I don't remember where it was in the book near the end where he starts talking about um, all the different paradigms for uh, the three the three axioms you know um, right. freedom community and inequality and how most of them just don't fit very well the, the mm. examples he gave at least weren't they were helpful for like recalling things that you know of but they weren't really helpful for explaining the concepts sure. uh, i kind of think about that a bit here especially when it comes to like bart and kant and and stuff like that but i don't think that really matters those are just something a little helpful little mm. things to grab right um right they're little like easter eggs they're not really meant to explain the concepts here but the basic idea yeah. is we're talking here about god or nature and he kind of equates um, the domains of thought revolving around those two names as philosophy and theology, uh, or at least in different order. So God with theology, philosophy with nature. Um, and these four rival paradigms, which he thinks the first three are all just pretty much wrong and don't have a lot of promise. And then the fourth one he thinks has some like uh, lines of flight from it from which you could think eminence in the way he's um, 
sort of uh, hoping for here. The first of which is philosophical delimitation. And this is the uh, view of the relation between philosophy and theology, where philosophy is the universal discourse um, of being and theology must do its work of signification from within the bounds that philosophy sets for it. So clearly here, philosophy has the uh, transcendental uh, signifier role and says exactly what being is and then tells theology, given that stricture, what it can and can't do. Right. Um, and his example here is Kant in the, especially the religion within the bounds of reason alone, um, which I think like the title of that book certainly sounds exactly like what he's talking about. I have some quibbles about whether or not that's exactly what Kant's doing with religion here, but that mm. necessarily matters. Um, I did wonder, I wasn't super sure about how Heidegger's idea um, fits into this since it seems so different than the Kantian one, which seems as he explains it a little bit more obviously fitting into this philosophical delimitation mode. But what did you think about that? Well, let's, there's an earlier formulation uh, just in the section just before this where he says this, um, that there are twin dangers that haunt thinking eminence. The first one is letting namelessness transcend names. And then the second one is making names transcendent to the nameless. So the question is, uh, and then he later he takes this idea of philosophical delimitation and he maps it onto that former danger so that namelessness transcends names. So in what way would namelessness transcend names in Heidegger, I think would be a way of thinking about it. And it's the idea that being transcends the ontic and beings, right? Namelessness is uh, given that transcendent status it is it is the thing that um conditions let's say all possible naming so that the names in heidegger beings in heidegger only have a sort of like derivative status whereas being itself is transcendent and fundamental i see that i'm just wondering where the whole picture of god as the um limited signifying comes in well because That's for heidegger god is a being is is an ontic category it's just right? a simple like university of being thing i think so applied to god yeah i think so okay yeah i guess that that makes sense i thought it was, it was more than just that yeah so i i have these little one sentence encapsulations for each of these paradigms that helped me kind of put it together in one neat package for this one i had god is limited by nature say that again god is limited by nature Right. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. So the next one is theological particularism. And this is the uh, paradigm wherein there is no transcendental horizon from which theology's signification practices can be judged. Um, everything is just an auto-referential tradition or like a language game. So auto-referential is kind of the key term here, meaning um, theology doesn't look to its its parents to make sure that it's doing the right thing, right? <laughs> which happens in the first paradigm where you just, you know, kind of like when your dog is, is doing something that keeps looking back at you to make sure it's doing the right thing. So it doesn't get in trouble. Right. Mm -hmm. That's philosophical delimitation. Yeah, because theology is always looking back at philosophy. Yeah. Like, am I doing this right? Like, yeah. Up here? Right. Okay. Um, here it's just, no, you have your own traditions. They're totally isolated from one another. 
um, and they only refer to their own concepts, right? It's, it's only like intra interreferential. Um, so he he, he names like McIntyre, Harris, the George traditions, the more conservative side, Wittgenstein on the idea of language games. Um, he says Bart's is here too, and I think he's right about the early neo orthodox Bart. That's kind of the big deal is that sort of you know uh, the Christ figure comes in like the Epistle of Romans. Um, and just totally wrecks all philosophical concepts and just and sort of replaces them and you know gets rid of philosophy mm-hmm. in a way. I think that's true about New Orthodox Bart. I do wonder if it's true about the later, more mature Bart, but that doesn't really matter necessarily. Yeah, this is where you'd want to talk to like Robert Jensen and what is it, Bruce McCormack and various others. Yeah, especially Jensen. I haven't heard that name in like ten years. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> His systematic theology was revolutionary to me man i loved that book oh my god (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah um interesting i did have a question here with regard to oh god where was it um with regard to McIntyre and Wittgenstein. Oh, no, this is what I was going to say. Um, so if the first category, philosophical delimitation, if namelessness transcends names, the way that Barber wants to categorize theological particularism is that names transcend namelessness, right? Right, but not, it's, not, it's not just a switch, right? Because the third, the third category, the third paradigm, is more of like the switch, where theology replaces philosophy. Here, it's just... Theology just gets rid of the transcendental. Yeah, it's like it's only names. Used to limit it. Right. It just kind of ignores or gets rid of namelessness entirely rather than replaces it. Yeah, this is what I didn't understand in relation to Wittgenstein in particular. So he says that, you know, so McIntyre and Wittgenstein assert the irreducibility of particular discourses. Okay, so particular discourses, let's say uh, domains of signification, they are irreducible. So then he says, you know, it's traditions for McIntyre and language games for Wittgenstein. So language games are domains of signification, right? And they are irreducible to any universal horizon. Okay, never mind. I got it now. Yeah, I, mean, I think that this is probably more true of McIntyre than Wittgenstein. I don't think yeah, anybody is like a Wittgenstein. The, the, mystin, the mysticism true. of Wittgenstein doesn't seem to fit here, really, right? Yeah, both that and... You know, anybody who followed in Wittgenstein's footsteps certainly wouldn't say that, like, there's sort of conceptual irreducibility. Um, but that, that's what language games means. Right. I mean, you could, you could sort of take the very, the naked idea of a language game and make a whole different point with it, maybe. And people certainly have. Um, but not in, like, the Wittgensteinian tradition, I don't think. Right. It's much more narrowly focused than that, yeah. You know, it'd be a really interesting follow-up to this discussion is Paul Livingston's book, uh, The Politics of Logic. And the reason is because he sets out these four orientations between the relation of thought and being that kind of map on to a lot of the stuff that Barbara is examining here. Um, and the four orientations are the ontotheological orientation. The second one is the criteriological or the constructivist orientation. The third is the generic, which is Bedu and... Uh, set theory. Um, and then the fourth one is Paul Livingston's own, and it's the paradoxical critical orientation. And so the ontotheological is 
what uh, maps onto the theological or uh, theology ontology, theological ontology, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and he talks about Aquinas. Livingston talks about Aquinas. Um, and then the criteriological or constructivist is where he talks about uh, like Kant. And um, but the interesting thing is is he talks about Wittgenstein there, uh, the early Wittgenstein, but the later Wittgenstein he places elsewhere within his schemas. Uh, actually into the last one, the paradoxical critical. So it would be interesting to kind of think about how it is that we understand the difference between like Wittgenstein in his earlier versus his later uh, uh, work. So I don't know. It would just be kind of interesting to think through that. And I know that's a book that you had been wanting to read for a little while. Oh, yeah, for sure. I would definitely want to read that. So um, just something to think about. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so the uh, the little sentence I had to sum up this was, there is no nature, just God. Yeah. Because it's the it's important, I think, here to note that um, it's not sort of having God replace nature. It's simply erasing the transcendence and leaving the sort of uh, naming or signification process still where it was before transcendence was erased. That really helps me. Yeah. I, or let's say this: uh, not just there is no nature, there is only God. There is no namelessness. There is only signification. Yeah. Exactly. Could you sort of also say the that idea of namelessness? Yeah. If that's the case, could we also say that a lot of like post-structuralist sort of semiotic discourse would fit into that? Yeah, that's exactly what I thought would be a better uh, claim to make than the language games. And sort of McIntyre represents like the conser- more conservative version of that. Yeah. So it really should have just been to me McIntyre is the more conservative version, and then the post-structuralists more as the sort of radical version. Yeah, but the interesting thing is, is because he's working within, like, uh, the paradigm of, of theological discourses here, he wouldn't he wouldn't uh, bring in like post structuralist discursive theory because it's not theological particularism. Right? Yeah, that's true. Although I think it is, but yeah, <laughs> I agree. That's yeah, that's yeah. what's interesting about. I agree, and and I I didn't agree, uh, at least not explicitly, until I read this, and now I'm kind of like, oh yeah. I, can, I do think it is theological. Similarly with the way I think, remember how I said I'm, I've been thinking a lot about my own, re, my current research with regards to capitalism. I think that capitalism really, or let's say critiques of capitalism would really benefit from this type of situating within these, these taxonomies as a sort of like theological discourse. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Okay. What's the third paradigm that he distances? Well, really quick, just a little, little callback for, for the listeners. This is the same... I think basic same paradigm that Prozorov talked about. Um, oh, what did he call it? Passive nihilism. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It was his yeah that there are just these regional term. competing narratives. There is no universal that that we can speak of. Yeah, it's just the passive nihilism. Yeah, I think exactly. That's what came to mind for me. Um, yeah. So the third version is a third paradigm is theological ontology. We already kind of talked about this. This is where um, sort of rather than erasing the namelessness, theology itself becomes the transcendental horizon from which right. signification can be do- uh, judged. Yeah, so this is the inversion of philosophical delimitation. Right. Yeah. Here I have the sentence as God and nature are, are convertible, which is actually a, a phrase that he uses here, which I thought was very helpful. And he yeah. mentions... Although the only thing is, he, he says they're convertible, but, but really, like when you look at someone like Milbank, who is somebody he mentions... They're not convertible because ultimately everything's reducible to God. 
Yeah, but I think the right? point is to say nature. So this idea of of like what what exists outside of us simply is God. Yeah, and then and that nature only has a status in its participatory relation to God. Right, because this is the idea. Like um, you use the term participatory, which I think is really important, right? Um, yeah. They use the phrase graced nature a lot, which comes from the kind of Catholic tradition and from Aquinas. Um, and it's the idea that that nature exists and it's like fully infused with God. So and that's the sense in which um, the two are convertible. Although it's also helpful to think about it as, you know, theology being the transcendental horizon that philosophy was in the delimitation paradigm. I really like the analogy that you gave about the dog looking over the shoulder, like, am I doing it right? That's exactly right. For theological ontology, philosophy is looking over its shoulder saying, hey, are we doing it right? Because philosophy has to be theological. It's all theological philosophy. There's something really interesting um, thinking about like the idea of like power in this as well. And this is why Milbank and them oftentimes t- are, are criticized because they want to bring back Christendom, right? So from a yeah. political from a political perspective, this orientation leads to this idea that theology is preeminent as an earthly regime of management. It's benevolent theocracy, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or who was it? I don't think it was Milbank. Maybe it was Milbank because it sounds like an appropriately ridiculous thing to say that the <laughs> the sort of uh, governmental practices in Lord of the Rings are the ideal one, where there's a benevolent king, but he lives very far away, and you're not really sure what he does. <laughs> that sounds exactly <laughs> like, like something. Oh my god, that sounds say. like the worst thing ever. That sounds like <laughs> a tyranny that I and I don't even know what it is. Oh my god, that's exactly it. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is a benevolent tyranny. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's why. And I want to. And I want to bring this up because I know that we're talking about a lot of like abstract theory here, and it's important to think about that there are political implications for each of these paradigms of thinking. Yeah, I mean the the philosophical delimitation one is basically like the liberal tradition, right, from Kant to Rawls. Right, and that's what. Speaking of Paul Livingston again, that's what he refers to as the criteriological, because that's the uh, frame of thinking that starts with Kant and that finds its zenith in the linguistic turn. Um, where uh, there's a regulative principle that delimits all that is sayable. Yeah, right. which is exactly yeah the the Rawlsian thing of translating discourse into um, what can be said rationally, right? Right, and and positivist scientific reason also fits into that as well because all that is sayable is delimited according to the scientific method or according to the paradigm of technological reason or that which is falsifiable, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, but it's the interesting, even more yeah. it's more even more narrow than the Rawlsian tradition. But yeah, it's it's still the same family in that sense. Right. Yeah. I mean you have like Kant that's a little bit wide, and then Rawls that's narrowed, and then like rash positivist rationalism is like extremely narrow. Yeah, ultra narrowed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. To the point yeah, of yeah. like absurdity, yeah. Right. Yeah, in theological particulars, we talked about it, that's kind of Prozorov's passive nihilism, and we see that right now, right? It's sort of the what do you do when the the sort of foundation of the liberal tradition falls apart and you just have multiculturalism as the um, preeminent uh, guiding principle? Um, and then sort of by itself, you don't have anything, you don't have any way to actually sort of judge anybody else's or even your own um, sort of judgments and significations in this sense right it's all auto-referential 
So you only have your mm. own tools to use. What do you do when you have to improve your tools? Well, you can't, right? Mm. Your tools are breaking down. Well, you're kind of fucked because that's all you have. Mm. You don't have anything meta tools to use, right? You've erased the transcendental uh, sphere entirely. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, we're kind of seeing mm. that, sort of the effects of that right now, right? The passive nihilism thing just maybe we kind of hoped it would work. Everyone in their own little isolated traditions doing their thing. But then what happens when like climate change is going to wreck the earth? <laughs> mm. All of a sudden you need like universal cooperation on things, right? The rise of fascism as a similar thing, right? It's just, it's yeah, not workable I talk- in those instances. I talked about this when I was on Rev Left Radio with Brett a little bit. I said it's no coincidence to me that you're seeing the emergence of this kind of like clamoring for a universal something, right? For a universal grounding. Because, you know, the the current paradigm of postmodern neoliberalism doesn't really offer us any grounding. It's the celebration of an ungrounding in a lot of ways. And, and so that is ultimately unsatisfying because we realize that the logic of the commodity doesn't provide the satisfaction that it claims to provide. And let's just say the logic of discursive analysis doesn't really provide us with any sort of communal attachment or belonging, at least not ultimately. It can provide like glimpses and it can be an element of of, of building or of attaching to a type of grounding, but there's still a sort of floating weightlessness that leads to a homelessness or an anxiety and um, so then what do people cling towards? Something, anything, a narrative that gives them that grounding. Jordan Peterson gives them that grounding by talking about evolutionary psychology and Jungian archetypes, right? And all couched within the language of quote-unquote classical liberalism, which is really like not. But, um, but nevertheless, he's providing a universal discourse, right? Religion is, again, provided as a sort of universal discourse. There's something that is there, this... Um, I think that's partly why there's a lot of attraction to socialism as well, because it is a universal discourse. So there's a dissatisfaction that we're seeing a lot with the dominance of passive nihilism, or maybe with what we might call theological particularism, which is really fucking interesting, because I think so many people would balk at identifying, let's say for lack of a better term, postmodern passive nihilism as being theological, but it is. Yeah, I think this... this Barbara's accomplishment here is sort of showing how it's theological without just being like, well, cause everything's theological or something like that, <laughs> right. which is sort of the, yeah, the, like the, the wuss move, the theological ontology way of doing it. Yeah. Which is just, well, because I say so move. So, um, <laughs> right. yeah. So Prasarab talks about, uh, passive nihilism and the failure of it leads to one of those, uh, traditions or narratives being elevated um to the transcendental sphere falsely and he calls that like false universalism or something right was that it uh oh god i forgot now uh yeah but it's it's basically what it is um passive nihilism active nihilism and yeah something like that was the idea was false universalism yeah it's a false universe you know it's not one of it's not a universal discourse but you got to elevate it because something's got to kind of recapture the glory that we've lost with passive nihilism that's exactly what theological yeah. ontology is right mm. it's just elevating yeah. one of those auto-referential you know isolated narratives or discourses and moving it into the transcendental sphere which has been left vacant mm. would we say that that's what uh capital 
seeks to do? The sort of isomorphic dominance of its own reproduction? It becomes the logic by which everything else is uh, explained? Yeah, m- maybe not capitalism, but maybe neoliberalism, right? Because that's sort of following, like think about, you've done a lot of reading on like Hayek, right? Um, mm-hmm. Hayek has a sort of universal vision about capitalism, right? It's a moral, mm-hmm. it's a political, and it's an economic um, view of the world. It's not just like, you know, have markets, right? Markets over central planning or something like that. Um, so that that kind of like Hayekian neoliberalism, that seems to be the candidate here for like the theological ontology, I would think. Mm. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, because I've been thinking a lot about the sort of uh, the isomorphic desire of neoliberal capitalism to infuse itself into everything. And this is what Marx refers to as the real subsumption of capital. Hart and Negri developed this idea, and David Harvey refers to it as like universal alienation or universal exploitation. I think that kind of fits into this um, to this paradigm that uh, that Barber develops. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and you can see it as, you know, Hayek was seeing himself as opposed to the rise of socialism, right? As a competing theological ontology, right? Both of these, at least in America um, in the West, come out of the Great Depression and the end of the First World War, right? And you have these competing visions. Is it going to be the USSR or the you know capitalist West? And these two theological ontologies want to uh, become that new transcendental horizon, right? And so they're kind of fighting over it, and they have these these battles. Um, and of course, you know, neoliberalism does win in that sense. But it, and that's why it's the dominant, I would think, theological ontology of today. You can't you can't think you can't have any concepts without that coming in and judging it, right? Mm. Which does happen right. in practice. Any philosophical concept you have, there's going to be some sense in which you know, marketization and the idea of freedom that exists within neoliberalism and human capital and all that kind of stuff comes in to judge uh, its worth. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I mean, that, again, makes me think of what we were talking about earlier with that idea of reverse causality from, I forgot the guy's name already, um, <laughs> the, the book Freedom Not Yet. Kenneth right? Surin, yeah. There you go, Kenneth Surin. Um with the idea that uh, that capitalism constitutes itself in its warding off of the very thing that threatens it, right? Neoliberalism strengthens itself precisely through the expansion of the logic of the commodity in derivatives markets or through risk management, right? Through hedging, because what it's trying to do is it's trying to manage uncertainty. That's what risk management is. That's what insurance is. You are managing the very thing that would cause disruption to profit-making. So you come up with mechanisms, endless, endless reproduction of mechanisms that supposedly hedge against or ensure against that disruption. Yeah, and Barber even makes this point, right? He says all four of these paradigms um, are sort of afraid of the surplus or excess of imminence that he's talking about and define themselves against it, right? And I think that's... yeah that may be overstating the case a bit. When I was reading, I was thinking, it seems like they're all co-constitutive of each other. So you mean all the paradigms are? Yeah, all of each other, okay. rather than just all against this one sense of imminence. 
So think about like, if we're going to call, you know, neoliberalism a theological ontology, I think it's kind of, if we're going to take this reverse causation idea, it's sort of being constituted not just by the surplus excess thing that, that Barbara's talking about, but by other theological ontologies or, or possible ones like socialism um, in the USSR and other theological particularisms um, that could exist, like the more traditional narratives um, and feel, philosophical delimitation, right? They're all enmeshed in this like network of causation mm. with one another. Um, the ones that exist and don't exist or exist virtually or whatever. And so you have this really complex network um, rather than just, I'm not sure he was claiming this, but it seemed like he kind of was, that they're all um, constituting themselves in reaction to this like virtual or possible uh, surplus. I think it's both. I think he is saying that, but I think he would not disagree with what you just said. Um. And we're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's because I've heard him in interviews talk about how there's this, what ends up happening is this endless process of signification, this endless process of naming. So these four paradigms are part of this larger network that themselves are both contingent and necessary in the ways that we talked about earlier, but that nevertheless, there are other ways of formulating the relationship, the paradigmatic relationship between competing discourses. And that these four are just the particular formulations that serve his purpose in this chapter to establish his argument as he develops it moving forward. Yeah, you're right. He does say that this is more of a, a stipulated um, set of paradigms for his own purposes. But yeah, right. I think that, that, makes, that makes more sense. Okay, real quick then. Jump into the fourth paradigm. Yes, yeah, so, the, oh, so the third one... Um, yeah, God and nature are convertible. We already said that. So the fourth yep. one is philosophical excess, our PE. And this, he says, follows from the first paradigm, philosophical delimitation. But it claims that the philosophical overcoming um, in that first paradigm wasn't successful. So theology still has this sort of contamination on philosophy or this negative effect on philosophy. So we have to begin some... Well, like its own, its own independent kind of, um, I don't know, should we say autonomous? But that there's something particular about theology. That it's not just like a derivative or residual thing that is necessarily defined in its differential relation with philosophy, but that there is something unique about it. Yeah, there is, but I think it, the, the contamination metaphor is super important here. Because it's he says speci okay. specifically that it follows from the first paradigm, where philosophy is trying to direct theology and tell it what to do, right? And so in a sense, philosophy is the parent, right? And theology is the child taking our dictation or whatever from the parent. There's some sense in which philosophy didn't actually get the authority it was supposed to have. So the kid's actually out smoking pot when it was supposed to be home doing homework, right? And it's kind of like... Mm ruining the family dynamic in a way that wasn't realized before or something. And so an investigation has to be done. There has to be, he says, a paraphilosophical discourse. So like a, like a, a separate bit of philosophy on the side, which comments on philosophy. It's like a meta philosophy of sorts. Um, mm. It's like a Ghostbusters and it comes in and tries to like deal with the theology that still contaminates uh, philosophy doesn't doesn't give philosophy the independence it was supposed to have or claims to have in like the Kantian tradition. 
Um, and is the, this is this is a sort of uh, theological sensing of the surplus that philosophy can't address. Yeah, exactly. He says that the good part of it is that it recognizes that surplus, right? It brings right. up the he says the difference in relation between philosophy and theology. It doesn't presuppose a resolution, right, to that relationship, which the other three paradigms. Right, and all the other the previous paradigms are all about resolution, whereas this one is not. It's not, and it doesn't go far enough, though, is his point, right? Um, it recognizes the surplus, but then doesn't really know what to do with it. And there's different, you know, he mentions like Derrida and Zizek and Bajou and Agamben, and they all have very different ways of dealing with the theology that's contaminated our philosophical concepts or whatever. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't quite go far enough to affirming the relay that he's talking about that goes back and forth like a ping pong table, you were saying, um, between philosophy and theology. Yeah, he, he says something right here. He says, uh, there's a quote, what is common to these instances, and he's referring to Agamben, Zizek, Nancy, Badiou. He says, what is common to these instances is not the precise value given to theological discourse, for that varies according to the specific interests of each philosopher. What is common is that uh, is the refusal to grasp theological discourse as something utterly foreign in nature to philosophical production. It's that idea that theological discourse is not something utterly foreign in nature to philosophical production. And then he says again, this does not mean that theological discourse is to be accommodated, but it does mean that philosophy, in order to fulfill its own endeavors, must think through or make use of its imbrication with theological discourse. Again, there's an imminent relation there that he wants to think through. Yeah, I thought this was good because it really helped me separate the two different kinds of return to religion that you find in continental philosophy, right? Because you have one which is like like the McIntyre-ish version, right? Which clearly isn't just trying to trace the theological influence on philosophy, but just sort of make philosophy into theology in a sense, like the Radox version, right? Whereas it is clear to me now that Zizek and Bajou and Agamben and others are trying to trace and figure out, well, you know, we thought philosophy was directing theology the whole time and had the parental relationship, but it didn't really. That was a yeah. misunderstanding of the relationship between philosophy and theology. We've got to go back and do some investigations here, like look at the crime scene and see what actually is the relationship historically between a philosophy and theology. Um, so it, it recognizes that there's this important um, relationship. And Barbara just wants to say, that, that's a good note, but not, not quite far enough. Mm. What's your one sentence for this? You know what? I think I forgot to put a one sentence for this one. Yeah, this, what would be the one sentence? I mean, so here's, here's something he says. He says, there's a sense in which philosophical delimitation, theological particularism, and theological ontology all acknowledge the differential tension between ontological and theological registers of thought. In other words, between philosophy and theology, between God and nature. Of course, there's a differential acknowledgement and all those other paradigms. goes on to say, but the response of these paradigms to that differential tension is to resolve the tension. It's the resolution of contradiction. It's the bad Hegel, the bad reading of Hegel, right? Mm -hmm. the, 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 the pure resolution of tension. This also then makes me think of Marxism. Remember, we've talked about this a couple of times, that there's a sort of, uh, I heard Todd McGowan once say it as that Marx's misreading of Hegel is that Marx sought the resolution of contradiction, right? 
that would be a certain reading of Hegel, but, you know, like Zizek and Crockett and others that Dan Barber quotes in a footnote, they obviously present a different reading of Hegel. Todd McGowan presents a different reading of Hegel, uh, a reading of Hegel that thinks contradiction per se as being integral to the process of truth, right? And philosophical excess is in that tradition. It's not seeking to resolve contradiction or tension. And so what I wonder too is, is there a way then to think if we are going to accept Barber's argument here? And he would he would do this because he is critical of, of certain Marxist thinking, right? Um, he's definitely a Deleuzian in that sense where he does criticize certain universal discourses. Marxism as a universal discourse in certain of its tendencies, particularly in I would say like the the common expression of Marxism would also be sort of subject to this criticism that it is maybe acknowledging certain tensions, but that it is seeking the resolution of those tensions ultimately. And that's where Barber's criticism of Marxism would come in. Yeah, I think it's no surprise that a lot of those figures in the philosophical excess paradigm are considered to be post-Marxists because they yeah. critique Marxism in, in a similar way. Or even um, Bedieu is sometimes they say that we shouldn't even think of him as a Marxist because he has no real critique of political economy. He's just kind of some kind of communist, you know, <laughs> which is an interesting way of thinking about it. But then that makes me want to ask you this. How do you think we could situate Marxism in general terms in those three other paradigms of thought? Is it a theological ontology as well? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, it depends what you're talking about right? with Marxism because it could be many things. But um I think we're talking earlier about, you know, Hayek versus the socialists, or at least the kind of socialist paradigm that was his enemy. That kind of thinking, you know, inevitably capitalism is going to turn into socialism or what Cohen called the, um, oh, what was the name? The obstetric metaphor. model? Obstetric model. Should just use yeah. the pregnancy model. I can never remember the word obstetric. <laughs> um, you know why the, I remember it? There was why? a movie where Robin Williams plays an obstetric doctor. I think it's that movie with, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Hugh, the fucking British dude. Um, Hugh Grant? Hugh Grant. And I think his, uh, God, dude, I can't, anybody's names right now. Anyway, I think it's called like Nine Months or something like that. Uh, really? And his his wife is pregnant and Robin Williams plays this like eccentric foreign doctor from like eastern europe of course i think they're in the uk and he can't say the word obstetric and for some reason that always comes into my mind i think of robin williams as this weird eccentric doctor that's a great mnemonic device i want robin williams to be involved in all my mnemonic devices <laughs> i know man i think that's what it's called nine months or something like that so yeah so that obstetric model that cohen talked about i think would be the a theological ontology right because it's, it's not trying mm. to be just a particularism right Maybe some of the post-structuralists who had dalliances with Marxism would be more on mm. that uh, theological particularism angle, or like uh, hipsters and communes type of thing. Um, if such an ideology is actually constructed enough to be considered, mm. ideology. tying this back into our examination with Brett when we talked about uh, Nick and Alex in their accelerationist manifesto, and like we've talked about a couple of times with the, the documentary that I'm producing and the book Inventing the Future that they write, they criticize folk politics, horizontal politics, which seems to fit into the passive nihilism, what you're talking about, the sort of like hipster, eat local, eat organic, buy secondhand clothes. Decentralized no Marxism, yeah. Yes, yeah. So that's more of like the theological particularism. Yeah, I think so. Whereas the sort of view of the capitalist socialism um, as the ongoing force is like that theological ontology. 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah, cool. so those are the four paradigms, right? Philosophical mm-hmm. delimitation, theological particularism, theological ontology, and philosophical excess. And I think Barber's ultimate point is to say the four paradigms all attempt to foreclose the possibility of the indeterminate signification of God or nature through the strictures of their concepts, except for philosophical excess, which grasps the surplus, right? But doesn't affirm the indeterminate signification, right? It just recognizes it. Whereas he wants to go further than just recognizing Mm. it and affirm it. And then we have to have this sort of um, signification that relays back and forth between Mm. namelessness and signification. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's that idea of the affirmation of the surplus that provides the sort of productive component to his project. Um, because it's, it's in recognizing the surplus and then according it proper maybe causal status in the way that he defines causality here um, that, that I think the rest of his project unfolds as he's going to examine religion, uh, Christianity, and secularity as diasporic terms, terms that are indeterminate in themselves. And it's because of how they are um, expressions of or warding off, dealing with, attesting to that surplus. And and I think that's why this chapter is so important is because he's establishing his framework that allows that other project of figuring out how to deal with surplus, the excess of imminence, the, that which is forever outside the scope of signification, but that necessarily is expressed in and through signification and that requires signification in a way. Um, it's understanding all of those relations that will help us understand what religion is, what Christianity is, what secularity is. Um, and then what diaspora as a concept is and how it operates within that paradigm of imminence. Yeah, that's really good. I think that's a good setup for the, where the rest of the uh, book's going to go because we haven't even really gotten into the whole idea of diaspora yet. This is just kind of a, a setup for that. Um, yeah. I wrote down this sentence as a way to sum up kind of what he means by surplus and how it works with the idea of imminence that began the chapter. It's not transcendence beyond imminence either by affirmation or rejection, which multiple of the paradigms do, right? But transcendence within imminence. Yeah, because it's really interesting. He's, he qualifies when he criticizes transcendence when he says, if we mean it by this. He never completely dismisses transcendence. Have you, did you notice that in the chapter? Yeah, I think because, he, I think he even mentions at one point, if you just completely read the idea of transcendence from this whole thing, you don't really have both namelessness and signification. You don't have the relay anymore. Yeah. Right? There has to be an imminent relation between things, but then the transcendence lies in the relay between them that never ends. Right? It's like a deepening of imminence rather than it is a going beyond it. Could we say that the transcendence is precisely the relay? That that tendency is transcendence, or is that yeah. essentializing too much? No, think? I think you're, I think you're exactly right. Because if you if you are just erase transcendence, then that's theological particularism, right? 
right? And so there, there has to be more than that. And the more is the relay between uh, the modes in, of imminence. And that relay is the transcendence, right? Because it deepens the imminence um, by going back and forth between them via signification. So yeah, that, that seems to me like you have to have room for transcendence, but sort of recodified in some sense within imminence. And, and in to talk about Deleuze, just so we can kind of whip this into an historical figure, that would map onto Deleuze's notion of difference as being primary or what we might refer to in his modification of Nietzsche's eternal return, what Deleuze refers to as the eternal return of difference itself. Not the eternal return of things that are differentiated, right? But rather the return of difference per se, or let's say the endless repetition of relay. As opposed to the primacy of like identity, right? Is the idea in Deleuze? Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. I'll just trust you on that. Yeah. <laughs> because the primacy of identity establishes that relation between transcendence and imminence that Barber is criticizing here. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Right? Yeah, I like what you said. Um, he says, the way that he frames it here is that imminence means the mere below cut off from the beyond only if we first accept an ontology of transcendence. But imminence involves, at its heart, a thoroughgoing rejection of this ontology. To affirm imminence is not to affirm the below against the beyond, it is to refuse such an opposition. And I think that's kind of what you were just saying a minute ago. Yeah, exactly. If you just cut off transcendence, um, it's like you know cutting the branch off from the tree and being like, I just have the branch. That's all that matters to me. It's like, no, I mean, by its very nature right now, the branch is just treeless. Right? Mm -hmm. Imminence has to be a, a reconceptualization of transcendence itself. Cool. Yeah. And then the next chapter is when he actually starts to then really discuss what diaspora means. And um, and it's all grounded in the work that he's established in, in chapter one. And so um, I'm really curious to see where he goes now, because now I think that this chapter is um, very rich from a sort of theoretical, conceptual, philosophical perspective. And I think now it's going to take a turn more towards explicitly like philosophy of religion or something along those lines. I mean, it's ultimately going to be a very uh, interdisciplinary project throughout, but now I'm excited because I think he's going to get a, a little bit more explicitly um, disciplinary in a way. Does that make sense? Maybe not? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll talk about religion and secularity and Christianity, and he's got a chapter here on Pauline theology. Yeah. This is, yeah, this seems like this chapter is much more of a uh, theoretical setup. What would be in the Socratic dialectic, defining your terms, but of course, rejecting that, right? Oh, I like that. That's exactly what this is. Yeah, this is a sort of deconstruction of the tendency to define one's terms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. All right, so we will pick up on that in a little bit. Sweet. But you know what we gotta do before we get out of here, bro? What do we gotta do, bro? We gotta do the sticky leaves, man. Yeah. This is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's giving us meaning in an otherwise potentially meaningless universe. So, Austin, what's doing it for you this week? So, I went to a cool concert the other night. Um, hey, your sticky I, leaves is like my sticky leaves now. I know, man. I Next, I'm went... gonna be talking about putting honey on my face. <laughs> 
I got a new thing, by the way, I'll talk about in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, but no, I went and saw a gentleman by the name of Fortet. Are you familiar with Fortet? I am. He's awesome. Yeah. So I went and saw Fortet here, and um, I didn't know who he was, but I was out having a couple beers with a buddy of mine, and he was like, dude, there's this guy Fortet that's coming next week. Do you want to go? And tickets were only 20 bucks, so I was like, fuck yeah, I want to go. So um, we actually ended up convincing the bartender who also overheard us saying that we were going to concert. She was like, I want to go, and so we ended up kind of getting her to get involved to get a ticket as well. But we convinced her to for the rest of the time that we were there at this bar, because it was really kind of quiet and mellow, we convinced her to put Fortet on for us to listen to while we were chilling for the rest of the evening. And as I was listening, I was like, oh, dude, this is sick. I'm excited now. So um, it was actually not last night, but the night before. Um, So I went to uh, this theater called the Enmore Theater in Sydney. And it's it's a normal theater, right? Like where there's a stage and there's a little bit of a a sloped... uh, uh, seating arrangement for the audience or whatever but this was a performance in the round so they I don't know if there are normally chairs but all the chairs were pulled out and basically he himself was just in the middle of the seating area the standing area and everyone else was just hanging out around him and I I didn't know what to expect like one I'm, I'm not super familiar with his music even though I spent the week in between when I found out about the concert to when the concert actually was just listening to his music which is rad but I still didn't know what kind of concert it would be. Like, I didn't know what kind of event it would be. I just assumed it would be him on a stage and people, like, listening. But it ended up being a sort of really immersive kind of um, experience more than a concert. Like, that's what I would refer to it as. It was an experience more than a concert. And it was really lovely. And it was this this immersion that that kind of induced in me a lot of different thoughts and feelings and emotions and... Um, I had a couple of panphilia moments, bro, where, (laughs) and I was totally sober because even though I'm not Catholic and I have never, ever done Lent in my entire life, I decided that this Lent, I'm going to try something just for shits and giggles. And so I'm not boozing for uh, the duration of Lent, right? (laughs) And um, so I was, I was totally sober, even though I smelled a little weed and I was looking around and I was like, God damn it, I wish I had some weed. And I was looking for anybody that looked like they might have had some, but I couldn't find it. Um, but I would have for sure gotten high. But uh, I nevertheless, I had some panphilia moments, dude. And I was just embracing it and really feeling the music, man. But uh, even like feeling with my eyes and I, I closed my eyes at certain points and was kind of dancing around and shit. But then even like opening my eyes, I just felt like this this connection, this connective experience. And there was one moment in particular. There's a song that he does where he samples like a Nelly Furtado, I think, uh, track. And um, and it's like really sped up and I don't really know the song and everything like that. But it went on for about 10 minutes and, and the, the lyrics of the song um, are really loud at one portion. And then another portion, they kind of fade away completely and it's just instrumental or just digital music at that point. And then... It kind of comes in and out at varying degrees of, uh, of volume intensity. And there were points during this 10-minute sequence of this arrangement of, of different um, tempos and intensities and uh, all kinds of different f- variables uh, of this, this particular song, I guess you would call it. But it didn't even feel like it. It felt like it was five different songs. But it was this 10-minute sequence where it was very orchestral where um, – the lyrics were so faint that I couldn't tell if it was coming, if the sound was coming from the speakers or if it was the actual people in the audience singing it. <laughs> and it, w- and it was really amazing because I got really confused 
and it it really like I got really interested in something called um, uh, theater of the oppressed that was developed by uh, a playwright and uh, theorist uh, Augusto Ball or Ball Ball I don't know how you'd say his name he's a Brazilian guy and um, he talks about the like sort of uh, ideas of like uh, immersive theater and invisible theater and in particular this notion of the breakdown between like the spectator and the actor. Like usually the actor is on stage and the spectator is in the crowd and there's this power dynamic, right? And you see that at most rock concerts as well, that there's the spectator and then there's the performer. And I thought that something that was so interesting about this, and even a lot of like, you know, electronic music concerts, like when you went and saw, was it, is it Tim Hecker? Is that the guy's name? Yeah. I imagine that there was still like, he's up on stage and he's like the maestro. Like you talked about like the paternalism of the lights and stuff like that, right? Um, there was none of that in this because there was a complete and radical breakdown based on the fact that he was one in the round, but two, I couldn't even see him because people's height, right? And it's not like he was elevated in any way. So, I mean, there were times when like there was like a perfect alignment in between people's heads where I could see the light from his laptop or whatever shining on his face, but it lasted for a moment and then it went away. But it wasn't about going to see an authoritative figure so much as it was him facilitating an environment. And it was really lovely because it was so immersive and for lack of a better term, it was very sort of democratic. Egalitarian might be a better way of, of framing it. Even though we all paid our 20 bucks and we were paying for the Enmore Theater and people were buying booze that go to the Enmore Theater and that probably go into the pockets of Fortet. But, you know, we're happy to do that because he's facil facilitating this larger environment. And it was really just a lovely experience. So... For people who don't know his music, I think his music is fantastic. And then just this is in praise of that type of immersive artistic environment that I would like to be a part of more and I would like to see more artists um, nurturing. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that democratic atmosphere is pretty popular in like the EDM and even IDM movement of which he's a part. What's um, IDM? And, I mean, it's it's a horrible name, but intelligent dance music. Oh, okay. It's a, it's a kind of joke on electronic dance music, EDM, which is supposed <laughs> okay. to be, by that nature, unintelligent. <laughs> ah, yes. Um, it's like Aphex Twin, I think, was like at the beginning of that that name, okay. IDM. Um, but like sometimes that democratic nature is just totally flimsy and stupid because it's basically like, you know, the democratic uh, process of sharing Molly. Right, mm -hmm. like that's the extent mm -hmm. of the community is right. giving each other drugs, right. um, and massaging then, each other, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. Because that the kind of music that the bad kind of EDM, I think, is like purely functional music, right? It's just mm. the uh, compliment or to getting me high. Um, whereas you know, Fortet's music, especially, I think you know, the album I know the best is Rounds, which came out um, in like '03 or '04 or something, and I first heard about him because he opened for Radiohead on the hail to the thief tour i think um mm. and that album is like has all sorts of like folk music and jazz and hip-hop it's like it's totally unclassifiable mm -hmm. although it's clearly in that kind of idm tradition and so it's it makes you think and it makes you experience rather than just being a, a function for drugs and and grinding right mm. which i think is the way that that democratic atmosphere can best be utilized yeah, I didn't know if I was just being like a wanky, self-obsessed philosopher, but I couldn't turn off from my thought, right? Like, I, I've been to many concerts, and I've been in many club environments, and I've been in many environments where there's dance music, electronic music, 
when I'm drunk as shit and I'm not engaged philosophically. And maybe it's because I was sober as well. Like if I was fucked up, it may have been different. But I was extremely engaged at a at a philosophical and conceptual level, observing people and, you know, uh, like, and I was still dancing and having an amazing time. I didn't feel stressed at all. I didn't feel like I wasn't turned off. I, I felt very refreshed the next day afterwards. And even when I went out of it, I, I was still on a euphoric high. But I definitely did experience more of that intellectual experience with his music. And maybe it's because his music facilitated that more. Maybe it's because the crowd also wasn't, like, people weren't, people were drinking and they were, they were drunk. But I didn't see, like, crazy, ridiculous, glow stick, dancing, you know, people fucking each other basically through their pants sort of <laughs> shit, you know? Like, yeah, I didn't see that stuff. It was much more, people were kind of there and everybody was on a similar non-linguistic wavelength. And it was really kind of lovely. So yeah, That's the I, thing, man, is like, it's not this binary between the intellectual side and the purely like physical or sensual side, right? That's a stupid binary. Like, you know, read the symposium, right? Plato's symposium. They're getting drunk as fuck as that dialogue keeps going on, right? <laughs> and it's actually contributing towards philosophical discourse. Um, except when, like, people start, like, falling out the windows and stuff. Um, maybe that does too. So, yeah, it's not about, like, the music that you have to just think about as you listen to it. No, thinking is an action. You're enacting it as you're in community with others. And even if you're, you know, getting high, that's not necessarily, like, stopping you from... Um, you know, conceptualizing and, and doing like philosophical work. So yeah, that, that binary should be rejected. And I think the best music really helps us do that, right? We enjoy it at a visceral and sensual level, but then it also like changes us and affects us and makes us think. I mean, in the context of Barber, there's an indeterminate, imminent relation between them, right? Between uh, grinding through your clothes and thought? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I do indeed. So yeah, check out his music. It was a cool experience, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it, man. It was lovely, and That's I've awesome, still dude. been yeah, I've just still been just listening to his music all week. It, it's especially good for when I'm like doing reading or writing, or um, it, it's it kind of like there's an energy to it. Like some of his more upbeat songs would actually be really good workout songs, like good running songs or bike riding songs because they they kind of just keep you going. Like some of them are a little bit more ambient and kind of background and you want to chill out, which are good for reading and writing. But some of the more upbeat ones too are actually also good for physical activity. So I, I, I've really been enjoying listening to his music and hopefully keep going. Oh, that's awesome, dude. I'm jealous about your concert experience. So Yeah, it was good, man. It was really good. I didn't have the apocalyptic experience that you had at the Hecker concert, but I had a, I had an immersive, connective experience. Yeah, very different purposes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> okay, cool. We'll, we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed our first exploration of On Diaspora by Daniel Barber. Feel free to run out and grab the book if you want so you can read along with us or ahead of us or even just to kind of skim through it and catch some of the highlights. Um, hopefully we'll be doing the exact same thing that we did today, doing kind of in-depth readings uh, chapter by chapter as we go through over the next couple of months here. If you've got any questions about the text, feel free to hit us up. You can either 
Email us at owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn, or of course we're on Insta as well, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can send us messages that way. Uh, what else is there, Troy? You can also, if you would, wouldn't mind, leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate that. It helps us get the podcast out to more people. And as we've said before, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes with a question in it, then we will answer that question on air as long as it's something we can answer briefly in like a minute or two. Um, yeah, so we'll do that. Leave us a review. Sweet, sweet. Um, and then, of course, if you want access to bonus content, uh, the newsletter, or to be able to be involved with suggesting topics for future episodes, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Is that pretty much it, man? Anything else we got to do? Just one more thing, dude. What's that, man? Das Vidani Americanski. Yeah.